Amen. Well, let's turn now in our Bibles then to Psalm 45 and read God's word together and, and hear it preached. Psalm 45, as we continue uh, looking through this part of the Psalms that we began a few weeks ago with Psalm 42. God's word says this, beginning in verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, And consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Join me in prayer, and we pray that God would bless his word. O God, we come to you as the majestic and glorious and holy God. Thank you that you have spoken to us so that we can know you. Thank you that you are a God full of mercy, abounding in steadfast love, so that we can gather before you in your presence. We come before you through Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah, and the sacrifice for our sins, our Savior, and our Lord. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, and the Spirit who guides us into all truth, the Spirit who comes alongside and teaches us, the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation, insight into the gospel, the Spirit that would help us to know the height and the depth and the breadth of the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus.
And we pray that you would do that for us. We ask all these things for your glory and in the name of Christ. Amen. What think ye of Christ? What think ye of Christ? I'm not going to preach in King James English. It's a, it's a famous question. Uh, maybe you grew up with the King James. The Pharisees asked Jesus, What think ye of the Christ? Now, they were asking that question to try to trap him about what he believed about the Messiah, but that has become a well-known line. Uh, People like George Whitfield have preached famous sermons with that title. What think ye of Christ? And that's the question we want to ask this morning. What do you think about Jesus? You know that people have all kinds of different ideas about Jesus, Gandhi famously said, I do not like your Christians, but I like your Christ. Now, Gandhi says that he liked Christ, but really what he probably liked about Jesus was his love, his nonviolence, just like Gandhi was not violent. Uh, But I have a feeling that Gandhi would not have liked Christ if he actually had known the real Jesus. Jesus probably would have told him that he was going to hell if he did not believe in him, and Gandhi, I don't think, would have liked that very much. Some people say that they like Christ because they believe that he is a moral person, an ethical person, and a great example of love. Other people today really don't like Jesus because they think that Jesus is very intolerant and exclusive. The real Jesus of the Bible, he is exclusive. He says he is the only way and truth and life. You know that different religions have different ideas about Jesus too. So Jehovah's Witnesses, they just think that Jesus was a man who essentially became a a superman by his obedience and became a very powerful godlike figure. Uh, Mormons believe that the Son of God was created by the Father along with his brother Satan. They were brothers in the spirit world. And then the Son of God progressed to become one of the gods and then come to earth and become a man. Muslims believe in Jesus. They believe that he is a great prophet, but that it would be blasphemy to say that Jesus is God. Modern Jews, at least the Orthodox Jews, they almost have a great hatred for Jesus. I don't know if they would say that. They feel very strongly that they do not like the Christian Jesus who would dare claim to be God. Now, those of you who are Christians or you've grown up in the church, you know what the Bible says about Jesus, that he is the son of God from eternity. He's the son of God who took on a human nature. And so he became truly God and truly man. And he walked this earth You know that he is the Messiah and that he is the only Savior for sinners. He died on the cross and then he rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven and is coming again physically and bodily to rescue all his people and to establish his kingdom. So you know all these things. But my question for you is, what do you think about Christ? 
Do you love Christ? Do you worship Christ? Does Christ have all of your heart? Is he the one whose glory you want to live for? Are these doctrines about Jesus? Or is Jesus the one that you truly love and worship? That's the question that we want to think about. That's the focus of this psalm. The psalm is focusing us on Jesus as a person. As someone who is lovely and lovable. Who we should worship and glorify. You see in this title of the psalm uh, that it says it is of the sons of Korah. So uh, before verse 1. And it says that it is a love song. It's a love song. It's a love song that probably originally uh, some scribe, some musician, he wrote this for a wedding. The king of Israel, one of the sons of David, we don't know when or who, but one of them was getting married, and so uh, these people wanted to write a song dedicated to the king for his wedding. And you see that... He is overflowing with his praise and love for the king in verse 1. This is the scribe talking about himself. My heart overflows with the pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. So the rest of this psalm, he's writing his love song for the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Just like I would write out really fast and and do excellent work. Uh, writing out the scriptures maybe so is my tongue my tongue is just ready and effusive and overflowing with praise for this king so the psalm is a love song to the king now who is the king that this song is about well it seems like even though it was originally written uh, for a king of israel that the Holy Spirit is guiding this writer and he's, he's inspired by the Spirit to write scripture here. That he's really looking forward. And he doesn't maybe quite understand everything about who this king was going to be. But he's looking forward to this ideal king. A perfect king. That one day was going to come. And so as he's writing maybe about an actual physical king in Israel, he's looking forward to a greater king. And we know who that king is. We know that, who that Messiah is. He is Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. In Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, it quotes the psalm. It quotes verse 6. And it says, Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So Hebrews 1 tells us that this psalm is written about the Son of God. It's written about Jesus. And so it's through that lens that we're going to look at the whole psalm and see who Jesus is. We're going to focus on Jesus as the one who is lovely, who is the fairest Lord Jesus. Now, the psalm is number 45, comes after 42 through 44. It's the answer to those psalms. 
Remember Psalm 42 and 43. He was cast down in his soul. And he asked God to send out his light and his truth. And you remember in Psalm 44 last week how they were being led as sheep to the slaughter. And, and the psalm ended by calling on God to awake, rouse himself, come help us, rescue us. And so it looks like they put this psalm here to be the answer to those questions. Call on God to awake. Well, guess what? God's got a majestic king who's got a sword on his thigh and he is riding out victoriously. You ask God to send out his light and his truth to come lead you back to him. Well, guess what? He's sending his king for you. And the king is coming to rescue you. So let's focus on this king. So we learn five aspects of Jesus from this psalm. First, we see that Jesus is the most glorious man to walk the earth. Jesus is the most glorious man to walk the earth. Verse 2 says, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Verse 2 here says that Jesus is the most handsome, most handsome man to walk the earth. Now, the Hebrew word there is the word for beautiful. Um, They use the same word for men and women in Hebrew, the word beautiful. They just use the word handsome here because in English, you don't usually call a man beautiful. You call a man handsome. But it means the same thing. This man is the most beautiful man to walk the earth. Augustine put it this way, the church father, early pastor. He says, he was beautiful in heaven and beautiful on earth, beautiful in the womb and beautiful in his parents' arms. He was beautiful in his miracles, but just as beautiful under the scourges, beautiful as he invited us to life, but beautiful too in not shrinking from death. Beautiful in laying down his life and beautiful in taking it up again. Beautiful on the cross, beautiful in the tomb, and beautiful in heaven. Jesus was beautiful. But this doesn't seem to be talking, it's not talking about his physical appearance. It's not talking about some worldly standard of what what people in a culture might call beautiful. Now this is talking about the glory of Jesus, who Jesus is as a person. Now, the Gospels don't have some sort of Wikipedia page to describe to us what Jesus was like and what he looked like, so we don't exactly know what he looked like. The Gospels really don't tell us anything about that, but we do have Isaiah 53, which is a very clear description of Jesus' life and his ministry. And in verse 2 of Isaiah 53, it says he has no form or uh, beauty, form or majesty, that we should desire him, and no beauty that we should look upon him. And so it's there at the beginning of Isaiah 53 to be talking about how he was born and was growing up. It's not talking about him dying on the cross and being mangled and tortured. 
No, it's talking about him during his life. There was nothing physically beautiful about him that would make people want to worship him or, or want, to, want him to be the Messiah. Instead, he was despised and rejected because he didn't look the part. He, he would not have made it in Hollywood. And so physically, Jesus didn't fit the world's standards of physical attraction. Does that mean that verse 2 of Psalm 45 isn't true about Jesus? No. Because Jesus' beauty was his glory. And you see that even in the next line of the verse. Grace is poured upon his lips. It's his grace that makes him so attractive. John Calvin uses this analogy. He says, you ever met a person who um, maybe they had a hard life? They're just a bitter person, angry and bitter people. And you know, when, when they're older, it's like you can see the bitterness in their looks. It's on their face. You don't have to say anything. You just know that is a bitter person. And it's, and it's literally physically changed the way that they look. On the other hand, Somebody could go through really hard things, but they are such joyful people. And you've probably known those people. Such joyful people that you can see it in their eyes. You can see it on their face. They're full of joy. And so John Calvin says, what about Jesus? A man full of grace and full of love and full of joy. So he might not have been physically attractive according to the world's standards, but you would be able to tell based on his face that he was glorious. Glorious on the inside. Because it would have been glowing upon him. And so that's what it means. That he is the most handsome of the son of men. The grace is poured out upon his lips is this image of you washing your face and your, the, the water falling down your face and being poured over your lips. It's as if Jesus is bathing in grace. He's so bathed in grace that it pours out upon his lips. And so with his lips, he brings forth nothing but grace. Jesus has nothing but grace for broken people, for sinners who come to him in repentance. Jesus has harsh words for Pharisees, for hypocrites, for wolves, but for the broken. Grace is poured out upon his lips. I bet that many of us in this room, we came to know Christ by reading the words of Christ. And there's just something about the words of Christ, right? That you, you hear him say, the truth will set you free. You hear his invitation to you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You hear the grace poured out upon his lips and you say, I want to know that Jesus more. I want to know him. I will follow him. I'll do anything. I'll, 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 I'll follow him wherever he calls me to go. Grace is poured out upon his lips. Therefore, 
God has blessed him forever. It seems to be saying that this is the way that God has blessed him. God has blessed him so that he has become the most beautiful and the one full of grace. So Jesus is the most glorious man to walk the earth. The second we see that Jesus is the majestic king. In verses 3 to 5. It says in verse 3, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And so in verses 3 to 5, Jesus is presented here as a, a great warrior, a powerful, majestic king riding out in battle with the sword upon his side. And as he rides out in battle, though, in his splendor and majesty and glory, he is not riding out like Alexander the Great to fight for himself, to fight for his own glory, to fight so that people would regard him and make him famous, so that he could show his power and his military strength. No, verse 4 says he's riding out for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. He rides out for truth because he desires that people might know the truth because it's the truth that will give them life. The truth will bring them out of the darkness and into the light. And so Jesus wants to establish his kingdom for the good of others that they might know truth. He fights for the cause of meekness. Meekness is another way of saying the word gentle. Jesus is establishing a kingdom of meekness. There are a lot of people today talking about, um, well, just in general, our culture today is very, um, people like to fight. And there are a lot of Christians today who are talking about how we need to fight. We need to fight back. We need to stand up, be Christians. Well, that, that is true. We need to fight for truth. We need to contend for the faith. You don't back down in the face of opposition. But there is a way that Christians are called to fight. We fight with meekness. That's our weapon. We fight with truth in gentleness. Paul says that you are to correct your opponents with gentleness. So we're not talking about being a bunch of babies here and backing down. No. Correct your opponents. Stand up for the truth. But there's a lot of macho-ness going on. Thinking that you're, you're fighting for what's right, but you're just being mean about it. You're not doing it gently. Correct your opponents with gentleness, for God may perhaps grant them knowledge of the truth. It's why the church is to be led by pastors who are not quarrelsome. The church should be marked by people who are not quarrelsome. Because this is the kind of kingdom that Jesus is establishing. A kingdom of meekness. Stand up for the truth. Don't back down. 
Persevere in the midst of opposition, but be gentle and meek. He's also fighting for the cause of righteousness. There are lots of people who think that they have righteous causes. And the problem with sinful people is that we are not consistent with what we fight for. We fight for some causes of righteousness, but we ignore other ones. Other issues of injustice or or unrighteousness in the world. This is why politicians are never going to be the answer. They're never going to solve our problems. Because you might think that one politician will fight for your righteous cause. But even if they could solve that problem, a thousand other issues of unrighteousness will still be around. But Jesus fights For all righteousness. Jesus is going to bring a kingdom. Where all who are weak. And all who are hurt. They will be defended. And Jesus will make sure. That right is done. In his kingdom. Jesus fights. With sharp arrows in verse 5. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Jesus goes out to fight like an expert archer, a marksman who shoots his arrows straight at the heart. And in one shot, his enemies fall. Now, how did Jesus do this? How does he make his enemies fall? Well, we see one way that Jesus began to fulfill this was when he rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. We call that the triumphal entry. As Jesus rode in on a donkey, riding out in his majesty, he was riding to his death. Because it was as he went to his death that he was going to be the victor. By becoming a substitute for sinners, he was actually going to defeat sin. By dying on the cross, he was going to crush the enemy, Satan. And so the sharp arrows that fell at the heart of the enemy, were the sharp nails that went through the hands and the feet of Jesus. As Jesus died and his blood was shed, it was that blood that took upon itself the curse of sin so that Satan could not hold us in the grave any longer. Jesus dealt Satan a mortal blow when he died on the cross. But then Jesus will finally finish the job when he comes again. Uh, He hasn't fully established his kingdom yet. But the Bible tells us that right now he's reigning at the Father's right hand. He is putting every enemy under his feet. And Revelation tells us that one day Jesus will return and he will come on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and a sword coming out of his mouth. And then he will throw Satan into the lake of fire. And death forever will be fully defeated. And Satan will have no influence on us anymore. There's a hymn about this. Ride on in majesty, it says. Ride on, ride on in majesty. In lowly pomp, ride on to die. Bow thy meek head to mortal pain. Then take, O God, thy power and reign. See, as Jesus 
was dying, that he then began to take his power and was raised from the dead and seated at the Father's right hand. So Jesus is the majestic king. A third, we see here that Jesus is the eternal God. We see this in verses 6 to 9. We'll just start with uh, 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, this, this part of the, the psalm is, is the main crux, if you want to call it that, of, of the psalm. How do you interpret the psalm? Who is this psalm about? Because there in verse 6, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's talking to God. Now, Jews would say that this is like uh, a sidebar over here. The whole psalm is about the king. And he gets to verse 6, and he starts talking to God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then he goes back, and now he's talking to the king. The scepter of your kingdom. Israel's king is a scepter of our brightness. Therefore, God has anointed you, the king. And it's just amazing if you read a bunch of commentaries, it just drives you crazy that they, they will come up with a thousand ways to make verse 6 say something besides what it actually says. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And who is the you? Well, it's the whole psalm, right? It's the whole psalm. The king, the scepter of the kingdom, is, is the king's. In verse 7, God, your God, has anointed you. Who is you? It's the king. And so, when we get to verse 6, yes, this is what it means. The king is also God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so this gives us some insight into understanding the Trinity. That there is a king, and the king is God. And there's also, there's God, and the king has a God. Okay, that, that makes sense? We'll look at verse 7. God, your God, has anointed you. So the king has a God, but in verse 6 the king is also God. And so that is some insight into the Trinity here. That there is one God, and yet there are different persons within the being of God. And so here we see the Son and the Father. It's the Father who anoints the Son as the Messiah. And yet the Son is addressed as fully God. He is God forever and ever. He's eternal. He's always existed. He always will exist. And this is the point that why Hebrews quotes this verse in, in Hebrews 1. Jesus is greater than the angels because he created the angels. He existed before them. He was eternal. He's not a created spirit like angels are. He is fully God. And so why does this matter? 
Well, if we're only supposed to worship one God, and we're also supposed to worship the king, well, we better worship the king as one God. We better worship the right God, the God who is Father and Son and Spirit. The Nicene Creed says that the Holy Spirit, along with the Father and the Son, is to be worshipped and glorified. That's the point. If you want to worship God, you must worship God as Father, Son, and Spirit, because that's who He really is. So He is God. He is the anointed Messiah. That's what the word Messiah means in verse 7. It's the word anointed one. He's the one chosen to save the human race and to be king. Uh, he, we, we come now to the wedding in verse 8. He is there in, in the palace with the band of people playing harps. He's got guests in verse 9, the daughters of kings. And what this is saying is that the most important people in the world are all gathered together. And they're all gathered because there's a more important person. The king of kings is here. And all the daughters of kings around the world are here to see this king at his wedding. So Jesus is the eternal God. Fourth, we see, though, that Jesus is the bridegroom in verses 10 to 15. So as we're here at the wedding scene, verse 10 now starts to speak to the bride. He says, Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The queen there, at the end of verse 9, is being talked to. And he says, consider, listen to this, pay attention. You need to marry this guy. That's what it's saying. Don't get cold feet at the altar. Don't say no and run away at the last minute. You need to leave your people. Leave your father's house and make the commitment to join yourself to this king. Now, we know from the Bible that it's the church that is talked about as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19. And in Matthew, um, Matthew 9, Jesus calls himself the groom. So Jesus here is the groom. He is the king. So who's the bride? It's you. Verses 10 and 11 are speaking directly to you. Listen up. Listen up. If you want to make the king happy, here's what you need to do. Number one. Forget your people and your father's house. Forget your people and your father's house. Uh, Get married to this king. Just like Genesis says, when you get married, you leave your parents, you join to your spouse, you become one flesh. In the same way, this is what it's saying. Forget your people and your father's house. You leave your father and you marry the king. Jesus talks about this when he talks about following him. He says, if anyone comes to me, but does not hate his father or mother, brother or sister, wife, children, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It doesn't mean that literally you must despise them. Obviously, Jesus says other places, it's wrong to to hate people. What he means is that 
You're to leave them for the sake of following him. That he is to be the number one priority. That you are to leave all behind if, if you need to. If you come from parents who are not believers, you please Jesus over pleasing your parents. If you're married to an unbeliever, I know there are many instances where this can get very complicated, but in general, you are to please your spouse, uh, please Jesus instead of your spouse. Jesus takes priority over spouse, children, family. Leave your father and your mother if you want to follow Christ. But the good news is the king will desire your beauty. So you leave all these things behind, but you have great love. You have the love of Christ for his church. He loves you so much, he will take care of you. He will provide all that you need. The king will desire your beauty. The second thing you need to do is bow to him. Verse 11, since he is your Lord, bow to him. Just like a wife is to recognize her husband as head, leader, 1 Peter 3 says, Sarah called Abraham Lord. Doesn't mean you have to actually call your husband Lord. Okay, uh, Lord Leo has a nice ring to it, but you don't have to, you don't have to do that. Um, but you must recognize your husband as leader and as head. In the same way, the church recognizes Jesus as Lord. You come to Christ He is not only your Savior, He is your Lord. You come to Him with all of your sin, and He invites you to Himself, but you do not stay in that filth of sin. When you come to Him, He cleans you off, and you seek repentance, and you grow in holiness. You make Him your Lord. So those are the two things to do. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, come to Christ. Make him your Lord. Leave whatever it costs you, but do it. Because you will know the great love of Jesus. The love of Christ where he gave up his life for his church. So if you will come to him, you will know your sins are forgiven and you will have eternal life. Well, in verses 13 and 15, we finally have the wedding. The princess is glorious in her chamber. This is, this is the queen all decked out. And she, with her maids of honor, is led to the king. And then verse 15, with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Christ takes joy in uniting himself with his church. He looks forward to the day in Revelation 19 when he will eat the marriage supper, the lamb and his bride. And we are presented before him spotless, without any sin. We will be presented and we will finally know our king in a deeper way than we ever have before. So Jesus is the groom. But the last thing we see about Jesus is that he is the head of a new people. In verses 16 and 17. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. 
You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The king will have sons. Now, this is a little strange, but the Bible talks about Christians as the bride of Christ and also as brothers of Christ and a few places as children of Christ. You can't take all that literally, right? That Jesus does not marry his own children. That's not a literal thing. These are all metaphors that are trying to show different aspects of salvation to help you understand these different things that, that happen when Jesus saves you. One of the things is that we become children of Christ. Now, we know, we hear a lot, we read in Galatians 4, being adopted as children of God the Father, with Christ as our brother. But there's also a sense where we are sons of Christ. The Bible talks about Adam as the head of the the race, the human race. And so, if you want to be a human being, there's only one parent uh, or couple that you can come from. It's Adam and Eve. Everyone is descended from Adam and Eve. Okay? Well, there's a a new race. Jesus talks about himself as the second Adam, the last Adam. So Jesus, like Adam, is the head of this new race. And so, if you want to be one of God's people, you get a new head. Jesus Christ. Jesus causes us to be born again by the Holy Spirit. And when you are born again, it's literally this image of of becoming a new person. You have a new spiritual DNA. Your spiritual DNA is part of a new race, the race of Christ. And so this is what it seems to mean when it's talking about the sons who will be princes in all the earth. You and I, the Bible says, will judge angels. We will reign with Christ in eternity. We will be princes and princesses. All of this is for the glory of God, that the nations will praise this king forever and ever. So what do you think of Christ? Do you see the beauty And glory of Christ, that my words are not good enough to show you, but perhaps the Spirit shows you the glory of Christ. If you're here and you're not following Christ, will you not make Christ your king? Will you stop living as your own king and get a much better one? Jesus. For those of you who are kids, What do you think of Christ? Is Christ someone you learned about in Sunday school? Is he the answer to the catechism questions that you know? Or do you love Christ? Do you worship him? Do you see his greatness and his beauty? For those of you who are Christians, maybe you are in the shackles of sin, a sin that continually beats you up. Do you see 
the glory of Christ. Someone more handsome and more beautiful than your sin. Follow him. If you're a Christian and you're still living in Psalm 42 and 43 and 44, do you see Christ as your spirit dry? Or do you see his glory that can fan into flames your love, that can bring joy when your soul is cast down? May we look to Christ. May we see his glory. Let's pray together. We give you all glory, our Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we thank you for revealing the Son to us, that we might worship him. God, we pray that by your Spirit you would remove in us the veil that is caused by Satan who deceives us, in our flesh that we wrestle with, the world that is constantly lying to us, this veil of our, over our hearts to keep us from seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Remove it from us. Give us hearts that are eager to worship you, that love you fully the way that you deserve. Give us lives that walk consistently with who you are. You are Lord and you deserve everything. May we not hold back the sin that remains in us. We ask these things in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen.